Welcome to episode number 139, Helping Youth with Emotional Difficulties, Part 5, Relationships. I am your host, Damon Soka. I have not said this for a while, but I do think that it is always important to note. This is not an official publication of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am a member, and what I state for the most part is my own opinion and comes from my own personal experiences, as well as those of others who are members of the church. Now today I'm going to talk about relationships and how they impact youth struggling with emotional difficulties. It will be obvious to anyone who has even remotely studied relationships or been in one that one 15-minute podcast is certainly not going to cover the subject or answer all the questions. We have whole sections of libraries, college degrees, and cable channels devoted to just relationships. And so what I say today is really going to try to touch on more of the heart of the matter. Actually, if you talk to anyone who knows me well, they would find me talking about relationships fairly humorous. You might be surprised to learn that I don't have many close friends. Even my family relationships between my brothers and sisters and I is more at a distance than you would expect. Yes, I talk to my brothers and sisters a couple of times a year, but sometimes not even that much. I have wonderful relationships with them and with my immediate family, my wife and my children, but my relationships can feel and look very different from what would be considered normal. So I am probably the last person to give good advice on relationships, but maybe that is also why I am discussing it. One of the signs and problems of mental illness is the inability to establish healthy relationships and then to maintain them. I suffered severe mental illness during that time frame in life when we most learn about human relationships during our adolescent and teenage years into early adulthood. This in turn has affected me throughout my life and my relationships. There are many reasons we struggle with relationships during a mental health challenge. Relationships require feeling trust, being able to communicate. It requires consistent effort emotionally and physically. It requires charitable love and concern, and last but not all, it requires an emotional connection. When you view each of these individuals' concerns, it's not difficult to see why someone suffering from mental illness struggles or cannot maintain healthy relationships. And yes, I said cannot. This does not mean that they do not have relationships with other persons. It means that those relationships will be incomplete in many ways. Now, I tend to look at relationships and mental illness somewhat like building a house without the right tools and materials. It can be done, but it takes far greater effort and maintenance. Now, a house, when we talk about one, must be built on really some kind of foundation that is sufficiently solid that it can withstand the weight of the house and the stresses of the weather. Similar to a relationship, when you look at a relationship, Our foundation is built upon trust. The foundation for any relationship is trust, and now trust is truly a combination of emotional connection, immersive experiences with the individual, and logical conclusions. When you think about trust in a relationship, what comes to your mind? While we don't often perceive it this way, we most interact with trust as a feeling. Those feelings come from our experiences and our personal feelings surrounding those experiences with the other person. Our experience and interaction creates a feeling as though the other person in the relationship has our best interest in mind and in heart. 
The more they do to reinforce this idea, the greater the feeling of trust. Trust and love, charitable love, will run together. It is nearly impossible to have trust without some type of unselfish love. Now, trust is an interesting emotion, and it also tends to be quite fragile. It is fragile in the sense that actions destroying the feeling of trust carry far more weight than actions that increase trust in our relationships. Certainly, negative actions carry enough weight against our feelings of trust that one bad experience can destroy our feelings of trust for many years. Even devoted and loving actions demonstrated after one bad breach of trust can take many years to rebuild a relationship to its former status. So untrustworthy behavior will have a far greater effect than years of faithful actions. It is the way we are built as human beings, but it is also a sign of the societies we live in. Trust is the first thing we look for when we begin a relationship. It is the feeling we most use to measure our relationships, and we measure our relationships all the time, every moment of every day. It is a consistent process that requires that we continually or continuously show trust and love. The curious thing about trust is that it is a feeling created within ourselves through the observance of the actions of others. Because trust must be built over time, and for most people, is not easily felt or given, an illness that interrupts the trust emotional building process will cause serious issues within a relationship. For instance, let's say I personally befriended a coworker or a classmate. Our initial friendship will begin by establishing some boundaries, some common experiences, and we will begin building that trust feeling. Depending upon our culture, our past experiences, and our life, we will look for visual cues as to how much trust we should give and feel. As I have said before, we cannot directly feel another's love or trust for us, even in the smallest measure. We cannot feel what they feel. So we look to visual cues to internally create this trust feeling. However, what we don't often discuss is that if we can't feel trust or love due to complications of mental illness, then we will be unable to trust another person. And this definitely hinders the building process. This is not because they are not trustworthy or that they do not have our best interest in mind or that they are even demonstrating or that they aren't demonstrating trust. It is simply due to our illness. When we are unable to feel trust, then nothing the other person does will be considered trustworthy. Also of great importance is the idea that when we feel the suffering, darkness, depression, anxiety, and pains of our illness, as much as we might attempt to mask it, it will show in our actions and in our visual cues we are sending out to the other person. Our depression, our anxiety from the perspective of another person can seem as though we don't care or love them. While we might be able to mask these issues from someone who is a casual acquaintance, to those with whom we spend our time, the shift in our feelings will be undeniably noticed. Fortunately, our depressions, our anxieties, and even our manias can outwardly appear selfish in nature, and that causes us to appear untrustworthy as far as a relationship is concerned. And so the person who is not suffering with the illness, and perhaps is unaware of our illness, will often view this as a weakening of the relationship. 
Some of these concerns and issues can be abated in moderate ways by explaining our illness to those closest to us. But even with this explanation, it is difficult to have a relationship with someone who emotionally cannot extend themselves to you. One of the major reasons or issues with mental illness is that emotionally it causes an inward retreat. And we will often spend a great deal of time and effort just managing our problematic emotions. We also tend to avoid being around others because we simply do not feel like interacting. And it is difficult to be depressed and be around happy people. Mental illness takes so much physical and emotional energy to manage that it is very difficult to expend energy anywhere else. And that is true in the sense of concern and care and love for others. The simple answer to the question as to why relationships are so difficult with mental illness is really, truly about feeling trust and the ability to extend oneself beyond our personal inner concerns. That leads us to the idea of communication in a relationship. Communication is the method by which we express our concern, love, and trust to the other person in this relationship. Often when we talk about communication, we think almost immediately about verbal communication. Verbal expressions certainly have a place in communication, but communication is not limited at all to verbal tones. We as humans look to other types and forms of communication as verification of what has been said. If we hear the words, I love you, we will look to the actions to ascertain the levels of love and trust. Communication for the human being in a complex world is everything and anything that flows from another human being. I'm going to repeat that. Communication for the human being in this complex world is everything and anything that flows from another human being. This can be from the way that they look at us or the way they do not, how they speak to us, meaning we care very much not just about the words, but how the words are said and what words are being used in what context. We look at their subtle body cues. Do they turn towards us when they speak? Are they distracted? Do they avoid eye contact? Do they text right back right away? Or is their return communication often delayed? Interestingly enough, we concern ourselves even with the subtlest of cues and smallest of insinuations. Indeed, we often look for a mountain of information from the molehill that is being communicated. Through our own communication, we are constantly reviewing and adjusting our view of trust and love. Our trust is either increasing or decreasing in our relationships. The problem with communication is that interpretation is often problematic. Our interpretations of someone else's communication is going to be based on what we know, based on our experience, our ability to interpret, and also our personal emotional state when we are interpreting. If I'm feeling terribly depressed, it will be difficult for me to view someone's actions as trustworthy. Our interpretation of the outside world is highly influenced by our current emotional state. If I'm seriously anxious, then I will likely interpret someone's actions suspiciously or with greater scrutiny. If I am depressed without any desire to do anything, it is very tough to feel loved and valued. And so others' actions demonstrating their love for us are likely to be ignored or misconstrued. A secondary but important concept of communication is also the idea of reciprocity. 
Individuals with whom we share a relationship will expect that we will communicate back to them. When we, they express love, care, or concern, they will expect that we will acknowledge their communication to us and return that love, care, or concern. It is the, when I say I love you, you expect the same in return. This is one of the ways we actually reinforce feelings of being loved and of trust. Mental illness interrupts those signals in that we are likely to interpret actions and communications incorrectly, and we are unlikely to communicate a positive return signal. It is the equivalent of the awkward movie moment when two leading characters who have been building a good relationship and one says I love you and the other person hesitates. When we don't get back the signal we are sending, our minds interpret it as the lessening of the trust and a weakening of the relationship. As if the person is saying to you, I hear what you say, but I am not feeling the same way as you do about our relationship. This is most often where the relationship breaks down or never really gets a solid foundation built when we have mental illness. Anyone who has been in a one-sided relationship understands this feeling very well. Now, during my years of illness, I spent many days having no desire to communicate with anyone. This was not due to any loss of love or purposeful moving on from a relationship. This was simply a matter of mental illness placing serious restrictions on my ability to communicate, love, trust, and return those signals sent to me by the other person. In other words, my desire to maintain the relationship had been overshadowed by my illness and replaced by emotional pain, suffering, and a lack of desire. You can only mask such things for so long. I recognize that my relationship suffered through this time frame, but because of the illness, I had no power to really address the problem. When you are suffering deeply, you retreat into your own emotions, attempting to sort out the problems and difficulties, and you avoid situations where you would feel worse. The second difficulty is that when you are depressed, it is very difficult to be around someone who is not. They consistently remind you of what you do not have, and that makes what you feel even more distressing. And so, those of us with mental illness tend to isolate ourselves. We do so to minimize the pain and suffering, because everything we do is part of what we are communicating. Our isolation will tend to decrease the number and healthy nature of our relationships. I admit that it is difficult to be in a relationship with someone who is suffering mental illness because more often than not they require a significant amount of attention, love, and energy that is simply not returned. They do not have the capacity to return that love and energy. And while we can understand that they have an illness and that they cannot return our demonstrations of trust and love, our minds still struggle to reconcile what it is seeing, feeling, and what is being communicated. In other words, our mind works through our experience, and our experience tells us that when someone doesn't return our communications of love and trust, then they do not love or trust us. That is a difficult barrier to overcome, especially for individuals learning to communicate and develop relationships, and those who have mental illness. It is also very difficult for new relationships that require more attention, more communication, and effort. When we talk about relationships, we talk about feelings. 
Sure, we might mention things like compliments, assurances of love, and admiration, but we feel our relationships. This requires that we are capable of feeling great love, concern, and trust. When we struggle with mental illness and the emotional dissonance that comes with it, those feelings will not be as readily accessible and may not be accessible at all. And so while our relationship might be running along its course just fine and its development is progressing, we will be unable to feel it. And how we feel about our relationship in the moment is our personal measure of trust and love found in that relationship. Now this causes our relationship to feel broken or worse yet, we can feel as though we are no longer loved or needed. Now, the problem is obvious. Nothing is changed for the other person who doesn't have the mental illness. But we who suffer will begin to communicate our current feelings of doubt, despair, and discouragement through all of our senses. This disconnect between what we did feel and what we do feel and our outward demonstration of it will tend to cause our relationship to suffer greatly. This is one of the many reasons why individuals with mental illness tend to have small circles of friends. With all of this inward turmoil, the outward will eventually come to pass. Our relationships will suffer when we do. And because mental illness is more often a long-term and consistent, our relationship troubles will be the same. Because we are discussing helping youth, this understanding will be incredibly important to those who are trying to help. Now, when we're trying to help the youth, there are a few things we actually can do. The first thing that a struggling youth needs is consistency and stability in their relationships. While their outward emotions and behaviors will vary due to the illness, they will need to see and feel loved, accepted, and trusted. What they need is to feel as though your relationship with them has not changed. Now, this is going to be very difficult for anyone, including mature adults. Our minds naturally reciprocate the emotions demonstrated by the other person in our relationships. If that person is being reclusive and isolating, our nature is, or our natural tendencies is to do the same. We might think that they need their space. The truth is that while they might need a little more space because it is difficult to be around someone who is happy and energetic, they still need to know that the relationship has not changed, that our love and trust has not diminished. In fact, because it will be difficult for the youth to feel love, they will need additional reinforcement as to your love and trust. The relationship is going to feel very, very one-sided, and for the most part, you will be unable to outwardly see if your effort is having really any impact. What I will tell you, as someone who has suffered and has been through this, is that it has a great effect upon the youth, even though you may not see it and even when the suffering youth cannot recognize it. I can tell you this because I have been there, and I can tell you that it makes a great deal of difference to the youth. The second thing that youth need is help recognizing their own emotional states. Youth will struggle to identify that they are inside of an episode or that they are even having emotional difficulties. With my wife, my children, and even friends who suffer, I have consistently helped them to see their emotional struggles and that they are suffering through an episode. I know that doesn't seem logical, that someone suffering with mental illness can't see their struggles, but that is the madness of the illness. When you are suffering, it comes upon you so subtly, so slow, 
that you can never exactly tell when you have descended into another episode or if it's just a bad day. The one thing you can do to help youth is to help them acknowledge what they are feeling and then to help them understand that what they are feeling is not necessarily their fault and it may be due to an illness, but to help them understand their feelings. And you can't just tell them once. Often you will need to remind them of what you're seeing and what they are feeling. Not asking you to be a therapist, but to simply discuss what they are feeling. And to help them understand that sometimes our body chemistry causes our feelings to be out of sync with the reality of everything else. Just helping them to talk about what they are feeling actually is going to be very beneficial. Now I should probably note that most youth in an episode are not going to want to talk because they are not accustomed to talking about their feelings or even accomplishing a self-analysis. Now as a society, we focus heavily on the measurable and that which can be easily replicated and explained, what we refer to as a scientific method. Emotions do not fall neatly into this methodology. In fact, they don't fall into it at all. And so we tend to diminish the reality of emotional connections in our lives. And we avoid such things as taking an emotional inventory and internal self-evaluation. Not only do we avoid them, but we avoid teaching our youth and children how to self-evaluate and then to work with that evaluation to adjust our emotional reality. Because we as a society, and often as a church, avoid this teaching and training, I wouldn't necessarily expect a long discussion out of the youth. One of the main things, though, we can do to help the youth is to teach simple self-evaluation and personal self-therapy. Yes, I know that we're not trained therapists, but there are simple things we can do to help. In the next episode, I will talk mainly about this idea of self-evaluation and then what to do with that evaluation to help ourselves and our youth to better manage healthy emotional states. Third, and I know I say this regularly, a youth who has mental illness will need help getting help. Many youth do not know that they are suffering, and our society often points dismissively to hormonal issues. Just hormones and changes in the body, we say, and then walk away. There exists some truth to the changes in hormones in the body, but those changes should not cause serious emotional issues that last over a longer period of time, probably more than a couple of weeks. When a youth struggles regularly and over time has serious emotional issues, we should consider discussing what we are seeing and what help they might need with them, their parents, and their leaders. We should consider discussing concerns with them. What should be said and understood is that a youth, a young person, a youth, is very unlikely to discover or diagnose their own illness or problems. They will need help, and it is going to take some time an effort to get that help. It takes time to properly diagnose and treat a mental and emotional illness. Emotional illnesses do not repair or dissolve overnight. It will likely take weeks of consistent management and even possible therapy and medications to bring the emotional difficulty back into alignment with normal emotional states. Fourth, and perhaps most important, is the development of the youth's relationship with the Savior and the Father. When we suffer emotional illness, it affects our ability to feel and hear the Spirit and to recall moments of spiritual growth and testimony. It pauses our ability to feel those positive, sustaining emotions necessary to have hope and joy. 
A youth is likely to feel as though God does not exist, and if he does, he doesn't care for them. To feel our testimony, we need to feel love and recall those positive stirring emotions that led us to feel truth in the first place. Youth will need positive, consistent encouragement to continue to do those things that will help them develop spiritually, such as attending church, reading scriptures, praying, and really all those things necessary to maintain and develop their relationship with the Savior. We can teach them to be open and honest in their prayers, respectful, but honest. We can teach them how to listen to the Spirit and how the Spirit speaks. We can teach them that their illness will interrupt spiritual communications they receive. When youth stray who have mental illness, we can be unconditional and non-judgmental in our love and in our efforts and seek to educate and to love them. When you stray because of mental illness, we must be patient and allow the Lord to work His miracles. The Lord cares very much for those youth whom he has given this emotional weakness, and he is consistently watching out for them. Yes, I know that it feels terrible to watch someone you love suffer, and we must all do what we can to relieve that suffering. But in so doing, we should understand our mortal limitations and allow the Lord to do his work. The one thing I have learned with mental illness is that the Lord provides additional mercies to those who suffer and greater forgiveness because of those altered realities brought about by the mental illness. He also provides wonderful revelations, blessings, and great mercy to those who come to the aid of those who suffer. May the Lord bless you this week to see those who are suffering, to receive that revelation, and to know how to help. Until next week, do your part so that the Lord can do His.